Hello, and welcome to Melting Pot Stories, the podcast that is a literary love fest for multicultural books. I'm your host for the show, Lori L. Tharps. I'm a writer, an author of both fiction and nonfiction, a fan of all things multicultural, and I love books. On this podcast, you'll hear inspiring conversations about the stories behind our favorite diverse books and the latest news and reviews from the publishing world. Come on and join me. I promise this podcast will leave you lit. On episode 63 of the podcast, I'm joined by author Jennifer Style to talk about her brilliant new novel, Exile Music. Exile Music tells the story of an Austrian Jewish family who has to flee Nazi-occupied Vienna during World War II and ends up living as refugees in La Paz, Bolivia. Based on true events, Jennifer was living in La Paz with her diplomat husband when she stumbled upon this fascinating piece of unknown history and knew she had to write a novel about it. During our conversation, in addition to getting the story behind Exile Music, Jennifer and I talk about her life as a journalist turned creative writer, how a job opportunity in Yemen inspired her first book, a memoir called The Woman Who Fell from the Sky. We also talk about the time that she was kidnapped while six months pregnant and how that harrowing experience inspired her first novel, The Ambassador's Wife. And we also get into a conversation about the own voices movement and who has the right to tell whose stories. I'm telling you, this is a riveting episode that goes way behind the book and digs deep into the writing life. But before we get to the conversation, let's take a melting pot minute to catch up on the latest from the literary world. Hello, book lovers. Can I ask you guys a question? Where do you do most of your reading? I'm going to be honest. I do most of my reading in bed. I really, you know, very rarely have time to sit in the middle of the day and read. So I just always make it a priority to read before going to bed. Sometimes on the weekends, I allow myself to stay in bed and read there. And to be honest, since the pandemic started, staying in bed on Saturdays and Sundays to read has been a treat that I've given myself since We can't go anywhere. So I am, you know, making a lemonade out of lemons and again, allowing myself to luxuriate in bed and read my favorite books. That's why I thought it was totally serendipitous that a pajama company called Print Fresh asked me if I wanted to be interviewed for their blog to talk about some of my favorite books by Black authors. I mean, I was like, okay. It seems to fit my brand, right? And then I found out that this company, Print Fresh, is woman-owned. It's based in Philadelphia. They use really diverse models in all of their advertising, like ethnically diverse models, as well as size diverse. They're totally committed to sustainable fashion, and their pajamas are just gorgeous, like bold colors and exotic patterns all on this gorgeous, luxurious cotton fabric. And so I was like, yeah, this sounds like me. And besides pajamas, they also sell journals. Uh, Yeah, 
pajamas and journals. It's like somebody jumped in my head and said, I'm going to create a, a company just for Lori Tharps. Anyway, so when they asked me if I wanted to be interviewed and then photographed in their pajamas, I was like, well, of course. And why am I telling you all this? Because I want you guys to go check out my pajama photo shoot and also read what I said about reading Black books outside of Black History Month. And you can see the books that I recommended for people to read. Also, you might want to buy a pair of these gorgeous pajamas for yourself because if you're like me and you like to read in bed, you want to look good while you're doing it, you might want to get a pair of these pajamas. And if you do decide to buy some and you use the link on my website, you can get a discount. If you use the link and put in the code at checkout, Lori L. Tharps, you will actually get 15% off of whatever you order. How cool is that? I thought it was pretty cool. So I'm actually creating a, you know, some of my, literally it's called some of my favorite things page on the My American Melting Pot website so that I can share with my audience some of the things that I love that have to do with living a literary life. And yes, there are affiliate links on this page, which simply means that if you purchase some of the things that I love, I might get a small commission from those purchases. You get discounts, you pay normal price or discounted price. I get a commission. It's a win-win situation and it will help defray the cost of this podcast. So please check out my new page of favorite things. Check out the PJs. Also check out that post on the Print Fresh site that features me because it also features my daughter who looks adorable. And she basically stole a pair of the pajamas for herself and decided she should be in the photos with me, which, you know, I supported that 100%. So again, check out my favorite things on the My American Melting Pot blog. Now, Let's stop talking about me in pajamas and move on to some book recommendations. If you love multicultural memoirs as much as I do, then you might be interested in these two new books that the New York Times just reviewed about biracial Black women who were raised in white households. The books are Raceless by Georgina Lawton and Surviving the White Gaze by Rebecca Carroll. In Raceless, British author Lawton shares how she grew up believing she was white. She had two white parents and everybody told her she was white, but she had brown skin and dark curly hair. And it turns out that Lawton wasn't her father's child. Her white mother apparently had a one night stand with a black man, but never told her daughter and her daughter never found out until after her father, her white father died. So her memoir, Raceless, goes into her upbringing and what it was like to be told you were white when you really weren't and then making sense of finding out that you were actually black. In Surviving the White Gaze by Rebecca Carroll. Rebecca tells the story of growing up as a biracial Black child being raised by an adoptive white family in a small town in New Hampshire where she was literally the only Black person in the entire town. And then she actually gets a chance to meet her white birth mother. And we hear all about that relationship as well. So both of these books explore issues of race, Blackness, family dynamics. And I think it's clear that by the end of both stories, even though they're very different, you will very much believe and understand that when it comes to building a family across color lines, 
Love Just Isn't Enough. I will put links to both books and to the New York Times article in the show notes if you're interested in purchasing those books or reading more about them. And one last thing, a quick update from our recent guest, Dr. Yaba Blay. Her book, One Drop, we found out, sold out of its first printing in 24 hours. Woohoo! That is so awesome. And the book has topped several bestseller categories on Amazon's bestseller list. So we just wanted to say congratulations to Dr. Blay, and we you know wish you continued success with this amazing book. Okay, speaking of amazing, let's get to our amazing conversation with Jennifer Style. Welcome to Melting Pot Stories, Jennifer Style. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you here because I am so excited about your book, Exile Music. But before we get into our conversation, and it is going to be a conversation, I want people to be able to imagine you and I having this warm, lovely conversation. But I think people need to know you know, where we are and to envision us sitting in two comfy chairs in front of a roaring fire, just having this great conversation about books and culture, except that we're not sitting in two comfy chairs in front of a roaring fire. I'm sitting in my bedroom in Philadelphia. It's nine o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. It's 24 degrees outside. There's like two and a half feet of dirty snow. It's a gray sky and I'm in my pajamas. Where are you right now, Jennifer? Well, I am sitting at a desk in a very large house in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and it is spring here already. Spring seems to arrive in February here in Central Asia. So it's very strange because you sound like you're in, you sound like you're in a comfy armchair right next to me. And yet I'm in the middle of Central Asia, surrounded by stands. And outside the violets are blooming. So our garden outside is covered with violets. My husband and I have been quarantined in the house for the last two weeks. So today was our first day we got to leave our home since we returned to Uzbekistan two weeks ago. And we took a walk around the neighborhood and we're surrounded by new construction on every side. So we took a look at how all these massive, monstrous looking buildings are proceeding around us and looked to see if our favorite stores were still there and just explore the neighborhood. So it's been a sunny day as it usually is here. We walked without sweaters And it's around seven o'clock at night. So I'll cook dinner after this. And I will make breakfast. (laughs) This, I, you know, this is beautiful technology. So, I mean, it kind of begs the question, Jennifer, what are you doing in Uzbekistan? Because I believe you are my first guest to ever call in from Uzbekistan. Well, that is a very good question. Uh, My husband, who is British, is currently the British ambassador to Uzbekistan. So it's his job that has taken us here. So we We moved here in August of 2019, I believe. But then my daughter and I, we have an 11-year-old daughter. She and I were evacuated last March because of 
COVID-19, the British government wanted us to be back in the UK where we could get what they consider superior medical care if we needed it. So we were evacuated and separated from my husband for 11 months, five months in London and seven months in France and just made it back here. Oh, wow. So your husband stayed, but you had to leave. That's right. So he had to stay to run the embassy and we were evacuated and sent to London where we had nowhere to live. And my daughter then got COVID-19 in London and she recovered swiftly, fortunately. And then Tim came to visit us in France for Christmas and the holidays. And I came down with COVID-19 and then gave it to him. So we were (laughs) delayed even further coming back here. So it's been a very interesting year. Yeah. So you just said that the British government evacuated you and your husband is British, but full disclosure, Jennifer and I went to graduate school in New York City together. And as you can tell by her accent, she does not sound British. Jennifer, can you tell everybody what your background is, your professional background, and we know how you got to Uzbekistan because of your husband, but you've lived quite an exciting life yourself as a journalist and a writer. Can you just give the, I guess, the abridged version of your kind of professional writing career? Sure, I'd be happy to. My path to becoming a writer was very windy with lots of strange U-turns and dead ends along the way. So my undergraduate degree was in theater because I had great plans to become a star of the stage and screen, which I kind of remember that about you. (laughs) So that hasn't worked out yet, but you know, I'm not dead yet, so... It could still happen. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I I moved to Seattle where I worked for four years as an actor in small theaters there. And it was while I was there that I began writing. And I began writing because I was frustrated with the kind of roles that were available to me as a young woman. I was in my early 20s, just out of college. And I was mostly cast as the sweet ingenue or the prostitute with the heart of gold and all these roles that over time became boring and repetitive. And I wanted to play an astrophysicist or a paleontologist or a trucker or just someone different. And I started writing stories because I I wanted to write the things I wished my characters could say. Um, I was just feeling so limited by them. And then I thought, you know, I actually never studied writing as an undergraduate because I was so so busy being an actor and maybe I should go get a degree. So I went and got an MFA on the East Coast at Sarah Lawrence College in New York and then was finishing that. And I thought, gosh, I still haven't published anything. And I wasn't sure what I could do to make a living. And so at the time I happened to be dating a journalist and I thought, hey, journalists have salaries. And, you know, they may not be very high salaries, but it's more than I've ever made as an actor or a creative writer. So I applied to Columbia University's journalism program with three days left before the deadline. And for some reason, they accepted me. And that's where 
I met Lori. And after I finished that program, I worked first in newspapers. So I was working in a small newspaper in Massachusetts, and then I worked for a newspaper in suburban New Jersey. And those were incredibly rewarding experiences. I learned a ton about how the world works, how the education system works, how hospitals are funded, how small towns function kind of in every way because I had to cover everything that happened in the five towns I was responsible for in New Jersey, for example. So I learned a lot, but I really missed performing. And while I loved working for a daily newspaper, I loved the deadlines. I loved seeing my name in print every day. I mean, I, I, and I learned so much every day and it was exciting to have a job that required me to learn things. I love that. But because I wanted to go back to performing, I thought I'd better switch to something that didn't have a daily deadline because I couldn't commit to a rehearsal schedule when at any moment the police could page me and say, you know, there's been a triple homicide in one of your towns. You have to go back to work. So I switched to magazines. I worked in New York City for various magazines, eventually ending up at The Week, which is a national news magazine where I worked for about five and a half years, which I think is probably the longest I ever worked anywhere. And it was a good job with fantastic health insurance. And Yet after five and a half years, I was starting to get restless. And that's when I got an email from my high school boyfriend who said, would you be willing to come off to Yemen and train journalists? And I thought, Yemen, Yemen, let me look at a map. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about Yemen at the time. And I wrote back to him and I said, well, I can't just leave my full-time job and my apartment and my fantastic health insurance and, and run off to Yemen. But I have three weeks of vacation time left. And if you'd like, I could come over and train the journalists that you're talking about. Because he'd been doing a little bit of writing for a newspaper there called the Yemen Observer. And he was not a journalist. And so I think I might have been the only journalist he knew, which is why he had contacted me. And so he said, sure, come over and train the staff of the Yemen Observer for three weeks and we'll see how it goes. So I was fairly terrified. I, I had never been to that part of the world before. I didn't speak Arabic, so I bought a book called Learn Arabic in 10 Minutes a Day, which I read on the, the A train in Manhattan, memorizing the numbers so I would at least be able to argue with taxi drivers once I got there, which turned out to be an essential skill. I moved and went to Yemen for three weeks where I met the most incredible people I've ever met. I was astonished at the warmth and friendliness of Yemeni people in general. I, I would walk down the streets in Yemen and everyone around me would say, we love you. Welcome to Yemen. We love you. And they would mean it. They would then invite me home to lunch after just having met me and and then want me to come every week. They were the friendliest, most hospitable people I'd ever met. And that wasn't what I'd been reading in the media in the U.S., um, which generally referred to them as terrorists. And, you know, that was when I started thinking, I need to write about my experiences here because these are not the Yemeni people that Americans are reading about. And I want them to know what it's really like here and what my journalists are like, because the people who worked for me were so ambitious and intelligent and 
exciting to work with, and they taught me a lot about the country. So this was how I first left the United States, um, because at the end of those three weeks, the owner, the Yemeni man who owned the newspaper said, I love what you're doing with the paper. My reporters don't want you to leave. So would you be willing to take it over and be the editor in chief? Oh, wow. I know. Exactly. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, no one in the United States no one would have looked at my resume and said, you know what, with your skills, you should be the editor-in-chief of something. I was not qualified to be the editor-in-chief of anything at the time. And yet, here I had the opportunity to learn how to to be the editor-in-chief of something. And so, although I originally, I turned down the offer because I thought, I can't live on that, I'm paying back student loans, I went back to New York and went back to the same newsroom where no one even really asked me what Yemen had been like. And I just thought, you know, I'm ready for a change. And I hadn't planned to move to Yemen, but if moving to Yemen is what it takes to move my life in a different direction, then I'm moving to Yemen. And I gave notice, packed up everything I owned and moved to Yemen. That's how it all began, was me taking this job running this newspaper in Yemen. And at the end of that first year, which was the most exciting and challenging year of my life. And I wrote a book about that first year. Um, But I met my husband at the end of that first year. I met him in Yemen. Wait, pause one second, Jennifer. Like you just said, and I wrote a book about it. Since this is a podcast about multicultural books, about books, about different cultures, can you at least give people the title of that book? Because I'm sure after that story, people are gonna make, what? I want that book. What was the name of the book? Um, Sure. So that book is called The Woman Who Fell from the Sky. And it's a memoir just of that first year in Yemen when I was the editor-in-chief of the Yemen Observer. And it tells the story of the kind of the hilarity that ensued once I accepted that job. And it follows my reporters. You get to know them pretty well. And experience our newsroom dynamics and kind of ends just after I met my husband. And that title, The Woman Who Fought from the Sky, comes from a Yemeni poem. I got permission from this Yemeni poet to use it. It's from a book of poetry called The Book of Sanaa. And I don't have it near me, but I think I can remember there's an epigraph in the book that goes, she was a woman who fell from the sky in robes of dew and became a city. And that is about the city of Sanaa, which is the most beautiful city I have ever, ever seen. Still the most beautiful city I've ever seen. And I thought it seemed appropriate for that book. It's beautiful. And it's the woman who fell from the sky? Yes, the woman. who. There is a different book. Yes, and that's my my friend Heidi DeRoe wrote The Girl Who Fell from the Sky. And I remember when your book came out, I was like, oh, (laughs) I know that title. Then I was like, wait, no, but I know the author. Oh my goodness. Okay, so, you know, if people are looking for it, it is The Woman Who Fell from the Sky or That Fell from the Sky? Who Fell from the Sky. Yes, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky. Definitely check that out. I'm assuming it's in paperback at this point. It is in paperback. It is in paperback, yes, and is available anywhere books are sold. Excellent. We'll put links to it in the show notes. So you meet your husband. What happens next? 
This is such a riveting story. I don't even know if we're going to get to exile music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, yeah. How much time do you have? Um, So I met my husband um, and then I left pretty soon after I met him because while I'd been running the newspaper, I had in my very limited free time been writing a book proposal for The Woman Who Fell From the Sky. And a friend of mine sent it to his agent who then took me on. So I was extremely lucky in that I found an agent without actually having to do much looking. And I went to New York and met with her and she spent three months with me rewriting my book proposal over and over and over and over until I sold my first book. And then once we sold it, um, which happened kind of astonishingly fast, um, we sold it to Doubleday in less than a week, I think. And this was in 2007. Then I flew back to Yemen because I had to finish tidying up the research on the book. And there was also a man I was interested in there. So I lived with a friend for a while until eventually I moved in with Tim. So ultimately, we spent four years in Yemen. So my daughter, Theodora, was born while we lived in Yemen. And I was pregnant with her in Yemen. I actually gave birth to her in London because the foreign office didn't want me to give birth in Yemen. One out of eight women were dying in childbirth at the time, and it's probably worse now. So she, her first home was Yemen. And I actually, I don't know if you want me to go into that this story, because this also is in a different book, but I was kidnapped when I was six and a half months pregnant with my daughter. Yeah, I think my- you should mention that. Go ahead. <laughs> You can't drop that little tidbit in. I mean, unless it's too painful for you, if it's okay, if you don't mind sharing, because I know it does come up in another book. And again, we really want to inspire writers as well as, you know, hook readers right now. But do you mind sharing? No, um, no. I I mean, I've told this story a lot and it was harder in earlier years, but it's fine. I don't mind telling it at all. I mean, I won't go into the whole detail of it. No, no, you can just, yeah, it's part of your story. Right. So this was 2009. And I did a lot of hiking when I lived in Yemen, because Yemen is an extraordinarily beautiful country. And I had a hiking group I hiked with every Monday. And then I started hiking with a new group of friends who all had connections with French people or the French embassy. And I was hiking with four other people, four other women. And we were hiking in a place that was allegedly a safe place to hike. It wasn't too far from Sana'a. We all had guards. I was required to have a bodyguard. Um, My husband had 10 and I had one, which tells you my relative importance to my... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to my husband. Um, but uh, so we were in the middle of the mountains about two and a half hours hike from any road when we'd been picnicking and all of a sudden we heard shouting and our guards were talking to a, another group of men, all of whom had AK-47s, but as anyone who's been to Yemen can tell you, this is not unusual. And also because, you know, Yemenis have a very animated way of speaking. So often it can sound like they're shouting when really they're saying, isn't it a great day? Isn't it beautiful out? Um, How's your mother? So I wasn't originally worried, but then this man who it turns out was the sheikh of the local tribe, the leader of the local tribe, cocked his gun and pointed it at me, at which point my bodyguard said, "Uh, Jennifer, you need to come here. And 
it's a little bit counterintuitive to walk towards a man who's pointing a gun at you, but I was trained. I'd been trained a lot by the head of our bodyguard team, and I was trained to do whatever he told me to. So I went towards the sheikh and my bodyguard was explaining that, you know, I was a woman and this wasn't how women were treated in this country and that I was pregnant, etc. Although you couldn't really tell I was pregnant because I was dressed in very loose clothing, um, my husband's clothing. And the sheikh, you know, when I looked at him, that was the first time I was afraid because I think sometimes when you look into the eyes of someone who has a kind of mental illness, you realize that they are not seeing you as a human being. They are not seeing the same reality that you are. And he clearly wasn't seeing me as a human being, or that was the sense I had. And I started speaking with him. I was the only one of the five of us who spoke Arabic. And so, you know, I said, we're friends. We don't want a mishkala. We don't want a, a problem. Um, we, you know, we'll move off your land if we're trespassing. And he and my bodyguard then got in an argument and I edged away and, and joined the women. And anyway, around this point, I decided I better call my husband and let him know. But my phone had been lost somehow in my conversation with the sheikh. And so we were from five different countries, these other women and I. And the youngest was a Romanian woman um, and she still had a phone. And so thankfully, I remembered Tim's number. I'd memorized it. But I thought there's no chance he'll answer his phone because he wasn't allowed to take a mobile phone into the embassy for security reasons. And I didn't remember the embassy number. So I called his mobile phone and by pure coincidence, he was having a meeting outside of the embassy in our home and thus answered the phone, which I don't think had ever happened before during a workday. And I explained to him that I was in trouble and he reacted as if I had called to tell him the weather. He immediately said, okay, is Muhammad with you? And where are you? And do you have a satellite phone, et cetera? You know, pass the phone to Muhammad. And then as soon as he got our whereabouts from Muhammad, who was my bodyguard that day, and who eventually received an award for saving my life, he then, you know, he got on the phone with the minister of the interior, who then got on the phone with the leader of the tribe, and negotiations began. And we still are unclear on exactly what went down in various negotiations. I think at one point, uh, they were asking for the government to give them some cement in return for us because building materials are at a premium there. But eventually, after a lot of toing and froing and trying to get us to go into this house, which I was resisting going into, I mean, we were surrounded by a circle of men with guns, so we couldn't move in any direction. And the women I was with were incredible. They um, you know, they'd lived all over the world. Most of them were older than I was. They were incredibly calm. No one panicked. No one was tearful. I mean, these women were just rocks and they were super protective of me because I was pregnant. And I think also, you know, originally when I was panicking, because I did panic, I will not lie, I was terrified. And I started having cramps and I thought, I'm going to prematurely deliver this child in the middle of nowhere while being held at gunpoint. And I thought, you know, if I'm not going to deliver this child prematurely at gunpoint in the middle of nowhere, I need to calm down. So... I thought, how can I calm down? And I just thought, well, yoga breathing, this 
is what it's for, finally. I found a use for all the years I've been practicing yoga breathing, and that calmed me down enough that that I didn't lose my daughter. And eventually, at the end of that day, a very long day, we were let go, and the French sent some trucks in to the mountains to ferry us to the road where the armored car was waiting for me. Armored cars can't go off-road because they weigh... I think literally like a million tons. They are super heavy cars. And so the bodyguards were there to take me back. Tim couldn't be there, of course, because he couldn't leave the house without the bodyguards and they were all with me. So we made it back safely to the house. All the other women went their own way and all of us were safe. And when I got back to the to the residence, um, to our home, the head of our bodyguards, I think, was tearful with relief perhaps having just seen his job go up in smoke if he'd lost me. Um, And Tim was just incredibly calm. And I said, weren't you worried? And he said, worried? I didn't have time to be worried. I had to get you out. Um, Which is, you know, he's good at his job. He doesn't panic. He just gets on with what he needs to get on with, which is kind of his attitude towards, you know, later on, um, he was attacked by a suicide bomber in, I think it was April of 2010, and again, was incredibly calm after after a body exploded on his car, so. Oh my God. But um, I do want to finish your story because the kidnapping story makes it into your next book, which was a novel, correct? And was that your first novel then? Yeah, so that was my first novel. And I guess, I mean, I'd always wanted to write a novel, but having written, you know, a memoir almost accidentally, and then ended up, I ended up living with Tim in this deeply strange circumstance that is, you know, diplomatic life. I quickly realized, I mean, all these fascinating things were going on in our home. Um, You know, we had Scotland Yard detectives and hostage negotiators staying with us. We had ministers staying with us. We had military people staying with us. And all this stuff was going on in our house that I couldn't talk about. I couldn't talk about truthfully. I couldn't write another nonfiction book about this really weird world, but the material was so good. And I thought, well, you know, if I don't want to, you know, prematurely end my marriage, I, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have to write some fiction. Um, so, you know, so I started working on a novel, but I started off with, you know, the account I had written for the foreign office about my own kidnapping because they had asked me to write up exactly what happened. So I had a really good record of it. And that is the only true scene in the book. Everything else is fictional. Um, the whole story in The Ambassador's Wife is fictional, um, but it does start off with a kidnapping. And after that, it was just a question of me saying, well, what if I didn't get released? And what if I'd left behind a small child? And what if my husband um, refused to leave post, etc.? And so I kept asking myself those questions until the book was done, really. So yes, that was my second book. And it's called The Ambassador's Wife. Yes, yes. So actually, I just want to, I know you've lived in so many different places. Like, can you just give us a sense of where you've lived between Yemen and where you are now in Uzbekistan? Sure. Okay. So four years in Yemen, and then I was evacuated with my six-month-old daughter, Theodora. So we moved to Jordan because we wanted to be a plane ride away from Tim, who had to stay in Yemen and finish his posting. So I suddenly was alone with an infant in a country I had never been to. 
Um, but we managed and found our way around Jordan by ourselves and stayed there for four months until Tim was done. And then we went to London for almost two years. And at the end of that time, Tim actually went to work for the European Union and became the head of delegation for the European Union in Bolivia, which is essentially the ambassador for the European Union, which has its own diplomatic service in Bolivia. And he was really excited because it was the first time he was working for someone other than the foreign office in his entire career. You know, he speaks seven different languages and he got to use a lot of his languages within his own delegation because he had people working for him from Belgium and Spain and France and Bolivia and Peru and all over the place. So um, it was really exciting for him. And it was really exciting for us because we got to be in Bolivia and learn Spanish, another new language for me, and, uh, and learn an entirely new country. So we were in Bolivia for four years. And then when we left Bolivia, we left just after the Brexit vote, which put a very swift end to Tim's career with the European Union. Um, much to his dismay, he was incredibly sad that he would no longer be able to work for them. But fortunately, he could go back to work for the Foreign Office. And so we moved back to London for a few years. And he worked various London-based jobs until he got the posting here in Uzbekistan. And we moved here in 2019. But then, as I mentioned earlier, my daughter and I spent the last 11 months traveling between the UK and France. France is where our only permanent home is. And so we're here for another two and a half years in Uzbekistan. So, yeah. Wow. So exciting. So the four years in Bolivia leads us an even better segue into yeah. exile music. <laughs> um, so, so for this podcast, you know, I like to talk about the stories behind the stories. I don't want to assume that everybody has read your book by the time they listen to this podcast. So we don't want to give anything away. But can you like, how do you describe what exile music is about? So Exile Music tells the story of a family of Jewish musicians from Vienna, Austria, who need to find a way out of the country after Germany annexes Austria and the Nazis move in and their neighbors suddenly turn against them. So this family, um, the father plays for the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, the mother's an opera singer, and the daughter, from whose point of view the, the novel unfolds, is around, she's 11 when they leave Austria. And her closest friend, Annalisa, also plays a major role in the book. And so um, you, the beginning of the book takes place in Austria. And in 19, by 1938, there were only three countries in the world still willing to accept Jewish refugees from Nazi-occupied Europe. And Bolivia was one of those three countries. So this family um, had never planned to move to Bolivia, but it was the only place that would let them in. Um, and so they, they go to Bolivia where they have to reinvent their entire lives, um, having left behind everyone they love and all their professional aspirations and all their money and belongings and their home and their friends and start life anew. Um, and this, of course, is based on a true story. So, I mean, do you want me to talk about how I got the idea for, 
for well, this? Well, that was the, <laughs> that was actually <laughs> what I was going to ask because the reason that I was so excited to read this book because again, you know, my love of story is when you have, you know, kind of cultures in connection, collaboration, or clashing, particularly when those cultures don't seem to have anything to do with one another. Can you tell us a little bit about, like, now that we know that you actually lived in Bolivia, I'm assuming this is like a tidbit of history you stumbled upon. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that history and how you found out about it. Sure. Yes, it was a bit of history I stumbled upon. Um, I mean, at the time, I was still writing The Ambassador's Wife, so I wasn't actually looking around for book ideas. But they always kind of attack you when you're not looking. And one evening, during really early on in our time in Bolivia, so we moved there in 2012, so this would have been in 2012, Tim came home from a meeting with the honorary Austrian consul and said, did you know that there were about 20,000 Jewish refugees from... Europe living in La Paz and other parts of Bolivia during World War II. And I hadn't known that. I hadn't read anything about this particular group of refugees who were not just from Austria, but from Germany and Poland and from many other countries. And so I thought, why have I never read anything about this group of refugees? And I started looking around and there were some nonfiction books. There was a really good nonfiction book called Hotel Bolivia written by one of these refugees, but I couldn't find a single novel. And so I started thinking, wow, this would make a really good story. And it's certainly a bit of history that should be brought to light. And I also started to imagine what it must have been like to be an urban professional person and suddenly find myself in the middle of the Andes mountains where I could no longer have my career. I could no longer earn money the way I always had. I had lost everyone I loved and I had to reinvent my entire life. And also La Paz is at 12,000 feet. It's, it's high up and it's quite difficult to live at altitude even today, as I discovered. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that was one of the things, I mean, I feel like that was, and people, please, I don't want to give so much away about this book, but this is such a good book. It is such a good book. It's so well-written and it's just such an amazing original story and the characters are just lovely. So please, 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 you're going to want to read this book, but I'm talking more about the actual backstory, but it's not because the book is not phenomenal. You just, that's just a side note. But can you talk a little bit about the, the actual physicality of arriving in Bolivia, because I don't think if you've, if you're not a skier, you've never been to Bolivia, that idea of living at a higher altitude, like, can you just describe what that actually feels like? Because it's something that most people, especially those of us from the Midwest, you know, grew up in the flattest place on the world. It's hard to imagine what you mean by like, you're living up higher and it, and it affects you. Can you just describe what that means, what that feels like? It feels different to each person and you never know how your body's going to respond until you're actually there. So even if you're a super competitive athlete, for example, you might have a terrible time at altitude and get violently ill. And sometimes you can be a couch potato and be fine. But what generally happens is when people land in La Paz, like if you fly into La Paz, you go from being in a a pressurized aircraft to being at 12,000 feet. I mean, a lot of people start throwing up 
the second the plane lands. And I mean, I used to overhear the flight attendants talking about how much they hated the Miami to La Paz flight because there would always be someone throwing up. And then, you know, people get dizzy, your heart rate changes, um, but altitude also affects digestion. It affects sleep. Like you either want to sleep all the time or you can't sleep at all. Um, For me, I didn't get altitude sickness. None of the three of us did in terms of like none of us vomited, but we, I think we're all much tireder than normal. Theodora was quite small and she adapted really easily. I mean, she had a headache on the way down from the airport, but by the next day she was pretty much her normal self. And then of course she spent four years growing up in Bolivia. So she adapted better than we did, given that she was still growing. And it takes a long time to to adapt to altitude. I mean, the altitude doctor I used to see there said it takes 40 days to adapt to altitude. And most tourists don't spend that long, which means that tourists never fully adapt, which is why all the mountain bike rides offered by the mountain biking companies in La Paz are all downhill because they don't, <laughs> <laughs> they don't want anyone like getting their heart rate up, you know, when they're not adapted to the altitude because it's lethal. I mean, you can get a cerebral hemorrhage and have to be medevaced. It can be serious. So, So tell us a little bit more about the actual, the real people that you met who inspired you to start writing this story, because I know you did actually meet people who were part of this original community of Jewish refugees. I did. I did. Not long after I had that conversation with Tim, I was at Spanish National Day and met a man named John Galanter, who was born in 1946, just after his parents arrived in Bolivia. And now his parents were from a small village in what was Poland, and then was part of the Ukraine, and then was part of the USSR, and now I think is part of Ukraine again. And John's parents had lost their two-year-old daughter and their parents and the entire Jewish population of their village to the Germans and the Ukrainians. And they fled just after the war and came to Bolivia. And that's where John was born. So I met John and he told me his family story. And I said, you know, this is really fascinating. I'd, I'd be interested in writing something about the Jewish refugee community here and the, the experiences that your parents and other refugees had coming here. And he said, well, I, you know, why don't I introduce you to some survivors? And he introduced me to a man named Guillermo Wiener. Now, Guillermo was originally called Wilhelm Wiener, and he came from Austria. He came over to Bolivia when he was eight years old with his parents and settled in La Paz, learned Spanish from his landlady's children, and he completely assimilated. He had Bolivian friends. He learned Spanish really swiftly. He considers himself fully Bolivian. He calls himself Guillermo. He will never go back to Austria because he will never forgive Austria for what they did to their Jews. He loves Bolivia and his children are in the U.S. and he's visited the U.S. many times and Israel and and yet he is most at home in Bolivia. And so um, while I spoke with other people and I read a lot of self-published memoirs or commercially published memoirs as well of other survivors who lived in Bolivia at various points, it was Guillermo's story that interested me the most partly because I wanted to write about someone who did kind of find their way more deeply into the Bolivian culture because 
a lot of what I read suggested that the refugee community kept mostly to themselves, like, and people kind of gathered by language groups. So the German-speaking community would gather together, and the Polish-speaking community would be separate from them, and so forth. But I thought that wouldn't be as interesting narratively than people like Guillermo, who were involved both with the refugee community and with the Bolivian people around him. So that's where I got a lot of the inspiration. But I spent five years researching this book, so there was there was a lot of research. That was one of my questions, was how long did it take you to research this book? Because the book is meticulously wrought, like the scenes in Austria, the scenes in Bolivia. And I did not know when I was reading the book that you had lived in Bolivia. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world? And now, now that you, knowing that you live there, but still, you didn't live there in 1940s, in the 1940s. So it's just really impressive how well I feel like I know what it was like to live in Bolivia, in La Paz at this time. And I just love your character, Orly. Like you said, you mentioned that you're telling the story from the young girl who grows up to be a woman in the course of this book. I'm just curious if Guillermo was your kind of inspiration, why you chose to write your main character as a female instead of a boy. Well, I mean, I mean, Guillermo was just part of the inspiration. I mean, first of all, I'm actually mostly interested in telling the stories of women because I feel we've been overlooked for most of history. And so I'm doing my best to remedy that by putting as many interesting female characters into the world as I possibly can. But the other inspiration for this book was my daughter, because she was around three, I think, when I started researching this book. And I remember one morning where she was quizzing me. She couldn't remember having lived anywhere but Bolivia. Um, and so she was quizzing me about where she'd lived before. And she said, where did I live before Bolivia? And I said, London. And she said, before that. And I said, Jordan. And she said, before that. And I said, Yemen. She said, before that. I said, in my tummy. And she said, well, where did I live before I lived in your tummy? And I said, well, nowhere. You didn't exist. And she looked at me with this horrified expression and said, I existed. I just didn't exist here. I existed in a land called Bunny Belts. And she began to describe it. And over the next seven years, she continued to develop this world so that it became really real to our entire family. I mean, it has a geography. We have maps of it. It has a culture. Everybody's vegetarian. Um, there are no cars. There's lots of pedestrian walkways. You know, you can walk anywhere. There's like the president is a hermaphrodite so that the president can equally represent men and women. You know, Theodora wanted it to be equal. Um, and she invented all these stories. And so, when I was first writing this book and thinking about what voice I was going to tell it in, I was thinking about my daughter and her story. And I was thinking, if I were a little girl in Austria, I would want to tell stories like this. Um, I would need an imaginary world to retreat into because the world around me was becoming so terrifying. And a young child wouldn't be able to cope with what was going on in Austria in the late 1930s or all of the 1930s. Um, and so as you feel Hitler getting closer and closer, you would need to escape somewhere. And when I started thinking about that world, I imagined her creating it with a friend. And that's how Annalise was born. I thought it would be more interesting if she were with a friend. And so I started out with these two little girls. And so that's how I ended up with Orly kind of. 
That's great. And I feel like, um, you know, I'm teaching a creative writing class right now at at the journalism school where I teach. Um, but we're talking about character development. And I always tell my students, you don't have to make up your characters out of your head that oftentimes, you know, you can get inspired by real people because real people often, you know, are a lot more fascinating than somebody that we could make up in our minds. I want to talk about this a little bit about telling other people's stories. I don't know if you are or not, but are you Jewish? No, I'm not. So how do you feel about writing? You know, there's a movement known as Own Voices right now. Um, I mean, it's a hashtag movement, but it's it's a question that I think writers have asked themselves no matter what before we had the, the beauty of hashtags to call things a movement. But how do you feel writing in the voice of, or, you know, telling the stories of people whose, let's say, ethnic or religious background is not your own. Like, did you have any trepidation saying like, you know, do I have the right to tell this particular story that belongs to quote unquote, this particular group? Yes. Um, and this, I mean, this is a good question. And it's a question that I think all writers have been wrestling with recently for sure. But I, yeah, I had a lot of doubt writing this book. I mean, for many different reasons, I'd never written anything that took place in a different time period. I'd never written anything that took place in Austria or in Bolivia or, you know, from a Jewish point of view. I mean, I I have kind of a history um, of wanting to be Jewish. And when I was in journalism school, I covered a Orthodox neighborhood, although my characters are not Orthodox, because most of the the Jewish people in Vienna at the time were were much more assimilated and less religious. But this was something that I have spent a great deal of time thinking about, and I think I mean I have I have a number of thoughts. Um, first, if we can't imagine ourselves into the lives and skins of other people, there is no fiction. This is what fiction is, is imagining ourselves into people who are different from the way we are. And I think people have always done this. You know, writers from the beginning of time, I mean, certainly men have been writing from the female point of view from the beginning of time. And I'll get back to kind of the gender issues involved. But one of the things that I found most heartening since the publication of Exile Music is that all of my fan mail about this book has come from survivors and almost exclusively from survivors who lived in Bolivia at some point. And two weeks after Exile Music came out, I got an email from a 90-year-old man who is now in Florida who wrote to me and said... I don't know how you knew all this. He said, you know, I, what you've written is so close to my own experience that I can't believe you made it up and I need to know who you talk to. Um, and so we, we became pen pals and, and became writing. And I think, you know, a lot of telling these stories is you really have to make sure that you do your research. You, you have to do your homework, do your research, talk to people um, with exile music because, you know, there's Imer characters, there's Bolivian characters. I had a host of people read this book specifically to make sure that I was accurately representing their culture, their country, their religion, etc. So I had Imer people read this book. I had other Bolivians read this book. I had a Bolivian journalist read the book who has more of a sense of the history. Um, my friend John has read the book. 
My agent's Jewish, so of course she read the book. Um, so I had as many people, I had Austrian, I had Austrian Holocaust experts read the book to make sure I didn't screw up anything to do with that. Um, I also had an Austrian woman who's an expert in this particular Austrian holiday called Fasching read the book to make sure I hadn't gotten that wrong. So, I mean, I did a lot as much as I could possibly do to make sure I hadn't screwed up massively. I was somewhat heartened in 2019, Colson Whitehead gave a talk. He gave the keynote speech at the AWP Writers Conference in the U.S. And he talked a lot about writing what you don't know and that that he believes that we should write something that scares us and that we worry we may not actually pull off and that that's where interesting stories come from. And he made this analogy between kind of his efforts to cook Korean barbecue and, um, you know, as in like him appropriating, I guess, Korean cuisine um, and writers trying to appropriate other cultures. And he said, you know, I'm going to paraphrase him because uh, he used words that aren't safe for publication. But he said, you know, if it tastes horrible, it's cultural appropriation. And if it tastes delicious, it's not. And so, you know, what he said was you could write about anything. Just don't. Uh, there's a curse word here. Just don't mess it up basically. Um, and so in a way, I mean, I was heartened to hear a writer of his stature kind of give me permission to tell a story as long as I don't screw it up, as long as I do my research and tell the story as accurately as possible. I mean, this is something I'm even more worried about with my next book. And I'm already having people from that community read it because I want so much to make sure that I get it right. Do you think your background as a journalist has helped you understand the importance of getting things right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, that's that's something I was um, thinking of earlier today it was actually, you know, because I was a journalist for many years and because journalists tell the stories of other people. I mean, your whole life is telling other people's stories as a journalist. Um, and so because that's where I'm coming from, I think I feel an obligation to do the research I need to do to make it believable. And definitely journalism gave me a lot of the tools I need to do research. And it also, you know, being a journalist, you know, as we had to sit through the same seminars on freedom of speech and all the, you know, what the First Amendment really means and all that. And, you know, that also has to do with telling the stories we think are important. And I'm not sure, like, would the world be better off if I hadn't written Exile Music? I mean, I'm the survivors are dying off. There are very few survivors left in the world. And it makes me think about that phrase from the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, the giving voice mm -hmm. to the voiceless, right? I mean, yes, yeah, that's kind of what I feel like this book does in the sense they're not voiceless because they do have a voice, but to get their story out there, you know, not everybody's a writer, right? And nobody's just right. walking around with microphones being like, hey, you lived in Bolivia and survived and you want to tell people about it? Like that's, that's not a thing. So I feel like to a certain extent as a fiction writer, you know, it could have been nonfiction, but as a fiction writer, you are also kind of giving voice to the voiceless. You're telling this story that almost nobody knew about and probably nobody would know about if you, if people don't, you know, tell these stories in one way or another. 
I feel like that's where a lot of my passion for these stories comes from is I find these stories. I mean, and, and everyone, I've, I, I speak to a lot of book groups, for example, and no one has ever heard this story. No one knows this story except for those who live through it and their, their loved ones. And, and it's a story I think is that people should know. And I feel that even as a fiction writer, a lot of what I do is wander the world and trip over stories that haven't been told and that deserve to be told. Because as you point out, not everyone is a writer and not everyone, you know, has the resources to tell a story. Like, I feel like the the idea that you would say, oh, but I can't, I don't have the right to tell it. So I'll just walk past it, right? I'll just keep it to myself. I feel like that's almost selfish, right? You know, it's not my story, so I won't tell it. I feel like you have an obligation if you are capable. But I I, I wanted to ask, did you ever consider telling this story as a nonfiction story instead of fiction? I did. I did think about that, um, especially in the, in the early stages was when I was really thinking seriously about it. But it was not easy to track down survivors. And I thought that I couldn't write as complete a story if I wrote it as nonfiction. That's that's kind of why I did it. I thought, well, I could tell an incomplete story um, or I could tell what feels to me a complete story that can really get into what I imagined their days were like. I mean, the thing is that even reading all these self-published memoirs, like people never told me what I wanted to know, which was how are you cooking? What does your yes. stove look like? <laughs> right. And, you know, can you get canned food? Or like right. I had all these questions about their daily life. And these are the things people don't write down. Right, um, of course, and of course. So, yeah, and so I didn't have access to a lot of the, the stuff I needed for nonfiction. I mean, I still needed to figure out how to work a kerosene stove and all sorts of other things in order to write this believably. But um, but I just didn't think I could do as good a job at bringing it to life. Like I wanted it to be a gripping read. I wanted people to get involved. I wanted them to be emotionally connected to the characters. And I thought I could better do that as a fiction writer. Um, I mean, as a reader, I know that I find just as much truth in the fiction I read than I do in the nonfiction. And nonfiction, of course, is shaped narratively to make sense of a story and things are left out and things are included. And so there's a bit of storytelling that goes into even nonfiction. Yeah. Um, can I just say one other thing that this is not, it's kind of related, but absolutely. also I've noticed um, just as an observation, there's a lot of gender differences in terms of how male authors and female authors are treated. And among those many, many differences in the way male authors and female authors are treated is that men seem to be able to appropriate cultures, sexes, whatever, with impunity. Um, men appropriate cultures and they get the National Book Award, um, whereas women do it and they get eviscerated. And, you know, I think women are held to a much tougher standard than men are. And not that I mean, we should all be held to tough standards. We should all do our research. I'm not excusing anyone from doing, you know, lazy research or writing an irresponsible book. But I do think we have to look at the ways we treat men and women differently in the publishing world. I agree with you 100%. And I do think it's, um, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I'm a Black woman. And if I, as a Black woman, am writing about white characters, nobody really yells at me for appropriating white culture. But at the same time, that's because of this, you know, we live in this world where it's um, foundationally set upon white supremacy. So it's a different power dynamic, right? And the problem that if if I write a book with white characters, which I did, my book is still considered a black book. 
just because I am a black author, my book is still considered a black book. It's still shelved with African-American stories, even though it has white characters in it or it's centered on a white character. So there's this idea of who is allowed to write about who. There's a lot of inequities. You know, I think you're absolutely right that men are given more of a free pass. They're even lauded for it, especially when men write about women. Suddenly Mm -hmm. they're the most best thing ever, right? You know, a man, even like writing what we would consider women's fiction, when a man does it, it's like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And he's the most amazing writer because he could, you know, write about women and it's maddening. It's really maddening. But I do appreciate the fact that you, I almost feel like you, you kind of told this book in service to a group of people, not as a, oh, I'm going to tell this story and exploit it or something like that. I feel like you put so much time into it and so much thought into it and so much research into it because you said, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. Thank you for saying that. I mean, that that is my fondest hope um, is that, I mean, when I was writing it, I kept thinking, I want anyone who's still alive, who remembers this time, I want this world I'm creating to be recognizable to them. Like that was really important to me that kept coming up. Like I want this to be recognizable. Maybe my story isn't recognizable because I'm making up the story, but the context, I tried really hard to get that right. And I just want to say that like, I totally agree with everything you were saying. And and the fact that like African-Americans and women and you as an African-American woman are not allowed to tell universal stories. Like our stories are somehow not universal, whereas male stories are universal. And that is a major problem. Like you as an African-American woman, you have things that will resonate with all of us. And women shouldn't be ghettoized in the women's fiction section, just as you, you know, you shouldn't be relegated to only the African-American section. You should be in literary fiction or journalism or whatever, wherever else your book belongs. It's like men write so many domestic novels and they're not called domestic novels, but ours are. (laughs) Right, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And that's, that's the thing. So, I mean, I think like at the end of the day, I mean, I, we could talk about who has the right to tell whose stories endlessly. And, and of course we could find examples of just horrible appropriation or, you know, people who, like you said, did lazy research, whatever. Obviously those people exist, but I do feel like that in some ways, like I don't want that fear to stop people from just telling great stories. Right. I just, I don't want people thinking that they can't do great research and tell a great story because it's a great story and that they don't own it. And in it, part of it's not even about the writer. It's about how people respond to it. Right. It's not anyone's fault that, you know, if somebody who doesn't belong to this ethnic group writes a great story and people respond to it, you know, is it their fault that they wrote a great story and they're not of that ethnic group? Like, I don't want people to be afraid of telling brave stories. Right. I mean, I, I don't like to see, I mean, you know, I think, again, this comes from the journalism background, like that chilling effect that we were always told about in journalism school. We don't want a chilling effect where people aren't telling exciting stories that they stumble upon. I mean, and the other thing I was, So I was speaking with my daughter this morning because who's now 11 and I was asking her because of your question that we talked about earlier, I was asking her, well, what do you consider to be your culture? 
Because I was wondering if she was to tell a story in her own voice, what would her own voice be? Because, okay, she has an American mother and a British father, but she has never lived in the U.S. She has no reason to think of herself as American at all because she has never lived there. Um, None of her associations are from the U.S. And so, you know, the first eight years of her life, she definitely considered herself Bolivian. And then we ask her regularly what she considers herself because it keeps changing. And today I said, so what do you consider yourself now? And she said, an alien. And I said, no, really, like, what what do you consider yourself? What's your culture? And she was like, I'm just an alien. And I said, you don't feel aligned with a particular country? Like you don't have, and she said, no, I am unaligned. And I thought, that's interesting. I'm I'm raising an unaligned child. Like, what? Whose story can she tell? Right. You know, I don't right. know. <laughs> well, my gosh, that's such a good question because think of all the third culture kids out there. Think of all the kids, like my kids, they're black and Spanish. Like whose story are they allowed to tell? Right? Like right. who's like when you start breaking it down to like you're only allowed to tell the stories that belong to your culture. Well, what culture do you belong to? Right. Right. So deep. We could keep talking about this, but I do. <laughs> I am mindful yeah. of you've got to make dinner. I've got to make breakfast. Um, right. Although I think it's going to be brunch now. But I just want to get a couple of more specific questions about the um, response to the book. You already mentioned that you've gotten some great responses from um, the Jewish community. What about the Bolivian community? And I don't know if you know, you did talk about the native people in Bolivia, also, you know, Bolivians as a whole, as a country. Have you gotten any response from Bolivian people and or the greater South American community? I don't know if that would even be relevant, but I just want to know what other responses you've gotten about the book. That's a good question. I hope very much that there will be a Spanish language edition of this book at some point, um, because I think that's really important because most Bolivians do not read English. So of the Bolivians I know who speak English, you know, I've had a really positive response, but that's partly due to them because they read early drafts of this book and they corrected a lot of my stupid mistakes. You know, they corrected mistakes about my geography. They corrected my Spanish. They corrected my um, descriptions of Bolivian holidays. And so everything I got right is kind of due to Bolivians who read the book in early stages. Now, I have spoken to a book group in Bolivia who was very positive about the book. You know, I haven't had the chance to go back to Bolivia since it was published. And again, the number of Bolivians who have access to it, given that it's not yet in Spanish, is limited. But I hope eventually they can all read it. I mean, this book is ultimately the story, not, you know, it's it's orally story. So it's a Austrian Jewish immigrant story in Bolivia and other people from that category. I've heard from the most, as I mentioned, but I've also, because I've been doing events with the Jewish Book Council, I've been doing a lot of talks to JCCs and other Jewish organizations. And that response has been so, so moving. I've had so many people say they they cry their way through it, especially people who live there. I mean, I don't want to make people cry, but but at least it was believable enough so that they were sad for the fictional people who bad things happen to. Um, I want to ask you a writing question. I know you teach writing as well. And I wanted to know for our listeners who are aspiring writers or are writers already, what do you think makes a good writer? I read this quote of yours from another 
interview that you did, and you called yourself a novelty junkie. You said, I like to constantly do and try new things. And I felt like that could be me. Like, in fact, that's kind of been my downfall in some ways because I can't stay in one place or do one thing for too long, which is why I think writing suits me because I can always be researching something new. What do you think is the thing that makes someone a good writer? And I don't mean like they have a good command of grammar. I mean, like the personality or the trait or something. If you could kind of, I don't know, distill that. What do you think it is that makes someone a good writer, a good fiction writer? That is such a good question. There are, I mean, of course, so many different things and so many different kinds of writers. I was just thinking the other day, I could never be Emily Dickinson, who, you know, apparently never left the house because I would go completely insane because I am a novelty junkie. Something that that is on my mind a lot. You know, I, I can't even do the same yoga video two days in a row without going mad, which is why this lifestyle suits me and why I've never been able to hold a job for very long, except for, you know, author, because I get to do a different book all the time. But I think, I mean, when people ask me for writing advice, like what's going to give them great stories to tell or... I guess, I mean, what I say to them is move to a country or move to a place that makes you profoundly uncomfortable and forces you to question all of your assumptions about the world and you will have things to write about. And I think that that for me has been crucial because I didn't even realize the ways in which growing up in the U.S. had shaped me until I lived in Yemen. And then I looked back at my life and thought, oh my God, I'm so American. Look at all these ways I'm shaped. And I never thought of myself as American before, really. I hadn't realized that I am the way I am because of where I grew up in such a visceral way until I lived somewhere so completely different and somewhere where everything I believed was constantly being questioned. Um, Or, yeah, and that was illuminating. And... I feel my whole life is trying to put myself in different perspectives and different cultures and to try to see things in different ways. So I guess the ability to look at things from different points of view and from points of view not your own is really critical if you're going to write good fiction. I love that. And I announced this on my blog a couple of days ago that I'm actually leaving the United States and moving to Spain. And hoping to pursue my writing more full time. And you just made me feel like that's the best thing I could possibly do. So thank you for that. Um, And I agree with you a hundred percent that if you want to inhabit the minds, the worlds, the lives of fictional characters, seeing yourself in a different way is so helpful. Like I always think of myself as a whole different person when I'm speaking Spanish, right? Like I'm not the same person. I'm a completely different person in a different language. So I love that. I love that advice. So, okay, Jennifer Style, award-winning author, has told you to just pick up and leave the United States, people. Go. Just go. (laughs) (laughs) Not all at once now. (laughs) And of course, you know, if you can't move, you can also travel. I mean, it doesn't have to be like leave for good. I mean, that's not obviously possible for all people, but it can be. Right. It can be a it actually even could be in a neighborhood. Like it could be a local trip, a local different place, right? I mean, you can see yourself Absolutely. in a different way, but that's why travel is so powerful mm-hmm. just to have I mean, those I think, experiences. I was going to say like, if you're a Northerner and you're afraid to live in the Southern United States, well then go move to the Southern United States. Like you don't have to leave the country. Even. Yeah. Cause that's um, different. Um, 
So, uh, Jennifer, what are you working on next? What you already alluded, you're already on the next book. So can you give us a little taste of what it is that you're working on? So I actually just finished, I should say, a draft since I haven't sold it yet because it hasn't been sent out yet. But um, I just finished writing the next book, which is a novel, and it is about a community of LGBTQ people living underground, largely because they've been forced to and kind of what happens. And it has a lot to do with revolution and art and women and being queer and things like that. So I had the best time writing this book that I've ever had writing anything in my entire life. So did you not leave out the part that doesn't this also take place in Bolivia? I think it takes place in Bolivia, although I'm not sure I'll leave. I may, it may be an unnamed country, kind of like Ann Patchett does in Bel Canto, where it clearly takes place in Peru, but she never names Peru. It could be something like that. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, once I have an editor, we can hash these things out together, I hope. But I'm really excited about it because, you know, as a bisexual person, I, I well, not just because of that, just as a human, you know, the human rights of queer people around the world are important to me. And the way that these people are treated in Bolivia and in elsewhere in South America is horrific. But this was also, I don't want people to think of this as being a book about trauma because it's its really not. It's also about art and power and revolution. So. That sounds exciting. And it sounds like hearing your entire background, you know, starting in the theater world, it sounds like you're pulling together all the things. This is that book where you're pulling it all together. That's the goal. That's the goal. I got to make that undergraduate degree in theater worthwhile. <laughs> Absolutely. Jennifer, this conversation has been so wonderful. And again, I could keep talking to you. I have so many like follow-up questions, but um, we'll just have to continue it offline. But can you tell people where they can find you? Um, Are you one of these people who is active on the social webs and interwebs and social media and all that? I am. I'm a little too active on social media. So you can find me on Twitter at at JFStyle7. You have to know how to spell my surname, which is S-T-E-I-L. So J-F-S-T-E-I-L-7. That's Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook. If you just look for me under my name, Jennifer Style, I will turn up. I'm on Instagram as well under my own name. And is that it? I think that's it. I think those three are all I can handle. I do a lot on Instagram just because I live in such picturesque places. So there's a lot of interesting photos of places I've lived on Instagram, if, if that interests you. That's excellent. And of course, you have your website as well, which we'll have links to all of Jennifer's social handles and her website. But you know, I said I was done with you, but I actually just have one more question. You just said this. Do you think you can have a successful writing life and a successful social media life? Or do you, when you're writing, do you, do you log off of the social medias? I try to, I would like to pretend that I'm super disciplined and I have set hours for social media, but I don't. The conditions of our lives are so chaotic. You know, we're always moving. We're always packing. I'm always worried about where my passport is. Some days I have time to do social media. Some days I don't. Some days I'm picturesque places. Some days I'm not. And so there's just so many factors in our life and so many kind of interruptions to, you know, I also, I'm a parent and a partner. And so all these things, and also being a diplomatic spouse, which is, we could talk a whole nother conversation about that. You know, all these come with obligations and 
Yeah, I I don't think there's such a thing as balance. I just kind of, I go, I'm like a human pinball. I just bounce from one thing to the next. But I do always try to get writing done somehow, even if there are days I have to spend on airplanes. I love that. That's good. I like it. I mean, I'm saying that because especially as we're in a global pandemic. And I feel like it's probably even more so for you that you have to stay connected. All of us now are so isolated that staying connected is important. You know, it's not just a distraction. If you haven't seen your loved ones in person in over a year, you know, sometimes social media is the only way. Or if you're living alone and you don't have a community because you're, you know, isolated, Sometimes social media is a good thing. So um, I like that you said that it's not perfect. It's not disciplined as maybe you'd want to, but we're all human. And I think we have to do what we have to do. Right. And I mean, at this point, you know, I do have people I love all around the planet and I want to stay connected to all of them. And social media is one of the only ways I can manage that. And if you're lonely, you know, write to me on social media because I'm telling you, it's pretty lonely here at the moment. So if it's lonely where you are, I'm happy to chat. Yay. And that is a perfect ending for our conversation. Jennifer Style, thank you so much. And everybody pick up a copy of Exile Music. You will love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such an enormous pleasure to talk with you and can't wait to talk to you in Spain. Yay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Jennifer has lived such an exciting life and it was so amazing to hear all about it. Like I mentioned, we did go to graduate school together, but we have not stayed in touch. So I was learning about Jennifer's life at the same time that all of you were. And it was just so inspiring how she, you know, keeps herself open to finding stories or she said stumbling across these global stories. And that's kind of how I feel like you can't guarantee you're going to find the story when you go out into the world. But, you know, I feel like if you have a writer's heart and a writer's kind of spirit and soul, you can't help but find these stories when you get out into the world. So hopefully, you know, once the pandemic is under control and we can travel again and we can get out in the world again and we can connect with other people again, all of you aspiring writers will go and find the stories that need to be told. And for all of you readers, I hope you were excited to hear about Exile Music. And I hope that you pick up the book and read it because I'm telling you, it is absolutely amazing. I think you will love it. And you will for sure be rethinking your ideas about World War II, about refugees and immigration, you know, the conversations we're having today around those issues. And it'll have you thinking about, you know, what is it that makes our home a home? You know, how do we define home? So yeah, I think Exile Music will do all those things for you after reading. And it might actually even just make you want to go visit Bolivia. So again, the book is Exile Music by Jennifer Style. If you enjoyed today's episode, And you know, I hope you did. And you want to support the podcast. You know, I have some ways you can do that. And I'm going to be quick. Now, I say this at the end of every episode, but there might be somebody new listening for the first time. So I'm going to repeat myself. And those of you who have heard these ideas already, listen again and figure out how you can support this podcast because we do need your support. 
So first thing you can do is leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also share the love. Tell people that you know who you think would also love this podcast all about it. You know, just tell them about it or put it on social media, but really tell the folks that, you know, love books, love multicultural stories, aspire to write multicultural stories about the podcast. And finally, there's a few ways you can support the podcast financially, which again, this podcast is not free. It's not free to produce. It's not even low budget because that's not how I roll. Um, There are costs associated with putting this podcast together and all that just comes out of my pocket because I love podcasting. I love books and I want to share that love. I also want to, you know, provide a platform for writers of color and other writers who are committed to telling multicultural stories. So I consider this a service. I consider it an honor to be able to do this work, but it would really be helpful to have some support financially to defray the costs. So how do you do that? You can check out my new page on the My American Melting Pot website of my favorite things that you might decide that they're some of your favorite things. And some of those affiliate links will help defray the costs. You can do all your book shopping at the My American Melting Pot online bookstore. And let me just say that that bookstore is a true curated collection of titles that I think my listeners would like. So, you know, when you go to the store and you're like, what should I read? What should I buy next? What should I read next? I've done the work for you. It's not an overwhelming collection. It's a collection of books that I have organized into different categories that hopefully speak to you when you are looking for that next multicultural read. So you don't have to be overwhelmed. You don't have to, you know, decide like, is this good or not? I'm not putting anything on my virtual bookshelves that is not worth your time. So shop at the My American Melting Pot online bookstore. Look at the My Favorite Things page on the My American Melting Pot blog or just leave me a donation. You can leave me a donation via PayPal. Again, it's on myamericanmeltingpot.com and links to all of these ways that you can support the podcast will be in the show notes. Thank you. Melting Pot Stories is produced by me, Lori Altharps. Our editor and technical director is Brad Linder and our theme music was composed by Sumi Tanoka. Thank you as always for listening. I will be here next Friday with a new episode. And until then, keep reading multicultural stories. Bye.